I invite you to turn your Bibles to John 14 tonight as we uh, walk through uh, this uh, together. I want to take about a half hour, and actually that's about all we have anyway. Uh, John 14 to do an overview of the end times. If you're looking for a very detailed chronological timeline of the end times, you've come to the wrong place tonight. Um, I just want to give us the big pieces. I want us to uh, be able to start looking at these things and thinking through these things. I'm going to suggest some texts of Scripture that you can look at that will help fill you in on uh, some of these, these big pieces. There are five events. Wow. Okay. There are five events uh, that we're going to look at in chronological order that will help us understand more of the end of the story. Now, I don't know if you've ever been reading a book before. Uh, where the pace of the narrative really picks up at the end. It seems that everything is coming together. All the characters find closure or fulfillment or something at the very end of the story. Well, the end of the Bible is amazing. It is amazing. And even more so when we consider that this is not just the end of any normal book. This is the end of a book who is inspired by God. and tells the end not only of this story, but of the end of human history. Peter called it the end of all things is near. And so as we work through this, I trust that God will uh, help us to make much sense of it. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through this. I pray that you would help us. I pray that uh, this uh, overview would be encouraging, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you would um, really allow it to be clear. Uh, We thank you for your word. Thank you for every piece uh, being inspired. Thank you that uh, Jesus gave us words and Paul gave us words, and Peter and other authors by the Spirit's enablement gave us words that um, tell us the end of the story. I pray that we'd make much sense of it tonight. I pray that uh, this would be helpful to all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so every, every discussion about eschatology has to have a timeline, right? Okay, mine's very simple. You can see I actually made this myself. The only reason I say that is I don't want you to blame any of our staff uh, for how ugly it is. Okay, so I'm not good at timelines. Uh, I usually don't do much timeline sort of stuff, but I do want to just walk through uh, this with you tonight. We're going to look at five events, as I told you. We're going to look at the rapture. That's what's going on in those clouds there on the left. Those are blue clouds, by the way. So the rapture, uh, and then we're going to look at the tribulation, And then we're going to look at the return of Christ, number three, and then the millennial kingdom, number four, and the eternal state, number five. Okay, so those are the five events I decided to look at with you tonight just to give us a more overview and understanding of what we're doing. So let's look at the rapture. And with each one of these, I'm going to give you a brief description and some key texts that you can study on your own sometime that would help you uh, get a better understanding of what's going on. Regarding the description and definition of the rapture, this is the event that we looked at this morning. The rapture is the snatching away of the church to be with Jesus. We meet the Lord in the clouds and we're with him forevermore. Looked at this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Another key text is 1 Corinthians 5. I've had you turn to John 14 in a moment. We're going to read uh, some of that today. As we talk about the rapture, of course, we know that this this will happen suddenly. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. We will be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they are living or dead, asleep, as we looked at 
already today. By snatching us away then, Jesus will deliver us. He will deliver us, many scriptures say, he will deliver us from wrath or the great day of God's wrath when God will judge those who stand in disobedience to him. I said this morning, I believe that the best place to put this on the timeline is to put it before the tribulation period, a time of great and utter destruction upon people and those who are opponents of God. There are several reasons why I do that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we won't look through all of these, but I'll, I'll give you three reasons why I think we're going to be raptured before the tribulation period. First of all, there's a text in Revelation. You could write down Revelation 3 and verse 10 which says that God will keep the church, in, in that scenario, it's the church of Philadelphia, from or out of the great hour of trial and wrath that will come upon the world. Because that text is an important text to help us see that if that great hour of wrath or trial that John's describing in Revelation 3 is regarding the tribulation, that God will keep us out of that. And I think the way that he would do that would be through the rapture of Jesus uh, the rapture of the church before the tribulation. Finally, I think one of the reasons, uh, another reason that we would do this is because while many of the events in the book of Revelation are chronological, especially when you get near the end, Revelation 19 and 20, and we're going to look at that tonight. We're going to read through some of that together. What you don't see in Revelation uh, chapter 6 through 18 is the church. You don't have mention of the church being on earth when you read all of these descriptions of the trials and the tribulations that will come upon the planet. There's no mention of the church being there during those events. I think that would be another reason to argue that the church won't be here during the tribulation, that the rapture occurs before it. Another text I used to defend a pre-tribulational rapture. By the way, I had a friend, his name is Matt Morell. He's about five foot four. Uh, he's, a, well, maybe 5'6". I just exaggerate. He's 5'6", senior pastor of Fourth Baptist Church, where I went uh, and ministered for a while. We've known each other since we were in, uh, we were in each other's weddings. We knew each other in Bible college. Uh, we're good friends. And uh, one of the ways he uh, describes his position on the return and the rapture of Jesus Christ is he says, he says it this way. He says, I'm, I'm pre-trib, pre-mill, and pre-shrunk. Okay. <laughs> Uh, pre-trib rapture. So before the tribulation, the rapture occurs. And later on, we're going to look at the return of Jesus and that occurring before the millennium. I am two of those three. Pre-trib, pre-mill, not pre-shrunk. Okay, but uh, we're in John 14. Let me read this with you. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. My personal opinion, Jesus is describing uh, his, this event, the rapture, where he will come and he will he'll bring the church, bring believers in Jesus Christ up to heaven to be with him. In this text, he says that he was going to leave earth and prepare rooms, uh, prepare places for believers in heaven. And uh, while this is a little hard to explain, if you believe in a post-trib rapture, you think it's going to happen uh, at the end of the tribulation, then what you say is, uh, 
you know, we go, we go up with Jesus, we come right back down with him. And so believers, if you're post-trib, you, you don't go up to heaven, just go to the clouds. You then spend a thousand years on this planet in the millennial kingdom. At the end of that time, there is a, a great judgment we're gonna talk about tonight. And then you go into the eternal state where there is a new heaven and a new earth created. Okay, so if you hold a post-trib rapture, then you don't, you don't have believers ever going to the current heaven where Jesus is. They go to a thousand-year millennial kingdom on this earth, and then they're in a new earth and a new heaven. So John 14 would be one of the reasons why I think for seven years, well, what Jesus is going to come and rapture us and take us to heaven, and then we'll be in heaven for those seven years during the tribulation period, okay? Uh, I won't get into anything more than that. I know that's a little complicated, but this is a rapture. This is the next, next event that will occur. The Lord Jesus will come in the clouds and he'll gather up the dead in Christ and those of us who are living, and he will take us to heaven to be with him. That leads us to the second uh, point, and that is the tribulation period. The tribulation period. Soon after the church is snatched away to heaven, a seven-year tribulation period will begin. This period was talked about by some of the Old Testament prophets like Daniel and Basically, the way I describe the tribulation is set before you. The tribulation is a seven-year period of great judgment when God pours out his wrath on those who persecute his people, the people of Israel. Beyond that, you could look at Revelation 6 through 18, and we're going to look at some of those sections together tonight. But uh, I would describe the tribulation in a two-fold way. First, I want to describe what happens on earth during the tribulation. What, it, what is happening on earth during the tribulation is a time of false peace initially. There's a man by the name of the Antichrist who's energized by Satan, who will deceive the world and lead them into a false peace. He will then break a covenant, a peace treaty, and he will begin to uh, persecute and attack Israel, or some representatives from Israel. And so that time of false peace, which is roughly the first half of the seven years, then leads into a time of severe punishment against the world because of their disobedience and because of their sin. And so I want to just show you a little bit of this. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. So we're describing what happens during the tribulation period, a seven-year period in the future on earth. Okay, and uh, basically, if you, if you read this section of Scripture, you will see that God will begin to send all sorts of judgments upon the world. Seal judgments and trumpet judgments and vile or bowl judgments will be poured out upon humanity because of their disobedience. And uh, just to give you a feel for this and how serious this is, I just want to read Revelation 8, 6 to Revelation 9, 6 with you. And we'll just look at a few of those judgments, the trumpet judgments here. Look at Revelation 8, 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and, there were th and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up 
A third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Revelation 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. We won't keep reading. As you read about these future eschatological judgments that God pours out on, onto humanity, I think one of the ways we should respond is by a serious burden for unbelievers. The fact that perhaps some of our neighbors would go through judgments of this nature. Okay, but this, these are some of the judgments of the, this period. And then, just look at verses 20 and 21, 20 and 21. Notice how they respond. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Despite all of these judgments that God pours out in the seven-year period, especially near the end of the tribulation period, people are not repenting of their sin. So God continues to punish them. So on earth, what is going on? A time of false peace that leads to severe punishment on those who are opposing the Israelite people. In heaven, there are two things that go on, and we won't take a lot of time here, uh, but during the tribulation period, those seven years, we're raptured up to heaven. There is a judgment called the Bema judgment. You could write down First uh, Corinthians chapter four, verses one through five, and you could write down Second Corinthians chapter five and verse ten. It describes the judgment that New Testament followers of Jesus Christ will go through. It's a scrutiny of our works. 
And every believer, I think, has some reward that they're able to offer to Jesus Christ. The other event is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, this is a celebration of the union of Jesus and the church taking place in heaven. You could write down Revelation 19, 6 through 10. So during the tribulation period, you've got these things going on in heaven. You've got the Bema judgment of believers and the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I want to go to our third event. So after the tribulation is done, it, it actually ends with this event. And for the rest of our time, I want to look at Revelation 19 and beyond with you. So turn over to uh, Revelation 19. And I just want to uh, point out a few things to you here. If you look at the return of, of the Lord, this is when Jesus comes from heaven. We actually come with him as the church. We have received our glorified bodies, and we come with him. We're going to read about that in, in just a moment. But from this point in the book of Revelation, and I think one of the strengths for a premillennial return of Jesus would be things are very chronological in this book. And I, I want to show you that as best as I can. Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. If you've got an ESV Bible, what's interesting is... Uh, John lays out these events in chronological fashion in six stages. Look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. Look at verse 17, the second stage. Then I saw an angel. Look at Revelation 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel. Look at Revelation 20 and verse 4. Then I saw thrones. Look at verse 11, then I saw a great white throne. Verse, Revelation 21 and verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. From this point on, John is giving us a sequence of events of things that he saw, six different things. The first is Revelation 19, 11 through 16, where he sees the return of Jesus. Let's just read it. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who do you think that is? Jesus. If you don't know so far, keep reading. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems or crowns. wonder where he got all those crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That, that just really helps us know this is Jesus. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I think that this, uh, the armies of heaven could include angels, but I think it's primarily describing believers in Jesus Christ, church-age believers who now have glorified bodies, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, coming back with Jesus. But we actually don't do much here at this point. For verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. This is describing one who's faithful and true, who comes with a heavenly army. This is the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. And that leads to a great battle. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of the Lord, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive down into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The one who's faithful and true comes with a heavenly army. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he engages in a battle with the beast, the false prophet, and Satan. I think this is the battle of Armageddon that some of you would recognize the name. After the battle of Armageddon where Jesus protects Israel, he comes and rescues them. In chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, we won't read it, but the next thing that happens is Jesus throws Satan into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. And that leads us to uh, verses 4 through 10 and a description of the next event I want to look at with you. Number four, the millennial kingdom. Okay, and there are different passages of Scripture all throughout the Bible where you can read this. But again, we're just following the events. In fact, what I've done in my Bible is I just put little brackets around these verses and I just describe the event. Revelation 19 through 11 through 16 is the return of Jesus, followed by the battle of Armageddon. And then Revelation 20, 1 through 3, is Satan is thrown into a pit. And then these verses, 4 through 6, is the millennial kingdom. Look with me at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on, on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If you ever hear about the millennial kingdom, where did they get this thousand year stuff? It's right here in the text. They reigned for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. We were talking about the millennial kingdom. I describe it this way. The millennial kingdom is a thousand year kingdom of Christ on earth. When he fulfills promises that he made in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ will reign and rule in Jerusalem, and the promises made to Israel will be fulfilled. Now, a great part of this for us is I believe that we as the church will also be here on this planet for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom, reigning and ruling with Jesus. Okay, so I often think about, you know, in the millennial kingdom, I wonder what portion of the world God will give me to rule. I hope it's not like Wisconsin or way up north. <laughs> Although, of course, I think during the Millennial Kingdom, the earth will begin to produce like it did uh, before the entrance of sin. There'll be great uh, productivity. And, and you, you could read about this in the Old and New Testament. Uh, great productivity. And, uh, you know, there are texts about someone uh, planting 
uh, a crop and then immediately growing up and the, the reapers have to be right on the back of them because it's just growing so quickly during the millennial kingdom. So we've got the presence of Jesus Christ reigning and ruling in this earth for a thousand years. We are here with him as well on this planet. That is followed by the release of Satan and then the final judgment of Satan and the lost. We'll continue to describe, oh actually we'll, we'll skip to the fifth state or the fifth topic, the eternal state. I want to describe for you for a moment here. You can see it there. After the millennial kingdom is done, the eternal state involves the final state of unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Believers will enjoy Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. Want to read about the great white throne judgment? Look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, the people from those regions, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Men and women, this is the eternal state of unbelievers. God will pull them from the grave, and they will give an account before God at the great white throne judgment. They'll be then cast into the eternal lake of fire. There'll be wailing, gnashing of teeth. But this book ends in a positive way with a description of the new creation. Revelation 20 and verse 1 talks about what happens to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll just end by looking at this new creation. And I especially want to describe what it will be like for us in just a moment, what we can grasp. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what is the, what is the new creation going to be like? It will be a new habitation, a new heaven and a new earth. There's actually a fun debate that I like to engage in with some of my friends, whether this is God purging the current earth and heaven and making, a, you know, from that a new creation, a new heaven and earth, whether it's from the substance of this or whether it's entirely new. It's a debate, and we can get into that, and you know, I think we're going to find out in the future. I, I think it's entirely new earth and heaven. 
that God creates here. Either way, we'll find ourselves in a new creation that has some continuities and some discontinuities with our present existence. I think believers will be able to go from earth to heaven during this time of eternal bliss with Christ. Look at verse 3. He continues to describe, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If I'm describing the new creation, I would say it also will bring the presence of God. We will enjoy him forever. He will be in this new heaven, this new earth. Verse 4, it will also mean the end of sorrow, death, and pain. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why do you think people are crying? Just saw the great white throne judgment. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. New heaven, new earth. No sorrow, no death, no more pain. We can keep reading, but I want you to go down to verse 22 to see uh, how the author describes it there, this new heaven, new earth. Uh, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here in a negative way, it says there's no temple in this city, there's no sun or moon, there's no closed gates, and there's no uncleanness. And the answer for why that is the case is because God is there. God is there. He's the center of worship. That's why you don't need a temple. He's the city's light. That's why you don't need a sun or moon. He's its defense. That's why there are no closed gates. You just leave them open. And there's no uncleanness because God is holy. His presence forevermore, we will be holy as well. We'll just close by reading five verses of Revelation 22, the last description of this new creation. Look with me at Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kind of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed or cursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. One of the most fascinating things about the Bible for me, and I don't pretend to understand all of it, we can ask some of the eschatology experts in the room, is the way he describes this new creation at the end of the book is that this is the final Eden. 
There's some things mentioned in here. The tree of life. When was the last time you saw the tree of life in the Bible? In the garden, in Genesis. There's a river flowing through this garden. And then look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything cursed. What does the cursing of this world and of humanity remind you of? When did that happen? Sin in the garden. And so here you have the fact that this story will return to its beginning, a new Eden for man and woman to dwell in, for us to dwell in. And there's one very important addition, though, to the original Eden, and that is there's a throne and a God seated on it where we will enjoy him in a new and close and personal way with God and with the Lamb. You can read about this in Revelation 21 and 22. This is an overview tonight. May we rejoice in our bright future. Bright future. Eden recovered with God in the garden with us. And may we spread the news to those who are subject to the wrath of God and eternity in the lake of fire. I'm going to close us in prayer. Let's stand together. We won't sing tonight, but we'll just close and uh, think of this. I hope that this overview is helpful. Probably, I probably created a thousand questions. Sorry about that. Uh, Pastor Paul did say he's available for questions uh, all week long. So if you got any, uh, send them over to him. Uh, you know, this, this is, I, you know, I don't pretend to say this is easy stuff. Maybe I moved so quickly through some of the things that it was hard to follow. Uh, this will be recorded and we'll post it for you if you want to just kind of slowly go back through it and read some of those texts. By the way, there are different, different ways good people come to these texts and put the pieces together. What I've described to you is what I believe. It's the doctrinal position of our church, but I recognize and know that followers of Jesus Christ, when they look at these texts, sometimes put the pieces together differently. What is obvious and true is that in the end, we will experience Jesus Christ forevermore, and we can rejoice in that together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to read through these texts of Scripture. I know there was just a, a lot of information here to take in. I pray that this overview, looking at these five events in sequence, would be helpful. I pray that we would love the text, that we would not be driven away from whole books of the Old or New Testament simply because of maybe some of our experience with people who claim to be experts or were date-setting or doing all this weird stuff with eschatology. May we not allow that to drive us away, but may we be driven to it because ultimately we know that the text reveals to us your son, Jesus Christ, and his future glory. These books reveal, reveal his future glory as the lamb who was slain and has risen. And Lord, may the pages of Revelation and 21 and 22, for instance, drive us, motivate us to think of this new heaven and new earth that we'll one day experience and being able to enjoy our creator God again.
a very close way, being able to enjoy our Savior, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. May we not be driven away from these books, but may we come to them because we love what they reveal to us about the end of the story. Lord, please give us grace as we leave to also keep in mind that our neighbors who do not know Jesus Christ will be judged, are sentenced to eternal lake of fire. There's no way around it in Scripture. The Scriptures are very clear. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we'd be burdened for our neighbors this week and share them the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the only way that any man or woman will ever be saved. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to see this in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.